Open door, good morning. My name is Amy Quinn, and as I am in here in this room, I can envision your faces in the places where you usually sit, and I miss you. If you are joining us newly online, and maybe you're not even in Phoenix, please take me with you. It's gonna be 113 degrees today. But no, seriously, a very warm welcome to you from all of us. Yeah, well, last week, Caleb, um, Caleb Smith brought the dad jokes, and so this week I got the mom jokes, so just be ready for that. Well, we are in Philippians, continuing in chapter three, and I couldn't have chosen a better song for us to begin with than the song about running to Jesus, because Paul's heart is absolutely, um, and this is his life's aim in Philippians when he's writing this letter, to run to Jesus. It is my prayer today, through our time in God's word, that you will be strengthened, that you will be encouraged, and that you will be comforted in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we open your word today, I do ask that you would inspire our hearing of it, even as you inspired the writing of these ancient scrolls. Um, and I just ask that we would know you more deeply and that we would proclaim you more widely. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a God-fearing man, a follower of the way of Jesus, and his name was Ananias. He lived in a city called Damascus in the days of the early church, and he had heard reports that the church in Jerusalem to the south was being persecuted. Brothers and sisters of the faith were being dragged off to prison. And he had just heard a report that the chief priests had granted Saul of Tarsus permission to arrest all the believers in Damascus. So all the believers are bracing themselves for what is about to come. Now imagine his surprise when the Lord appears to him in a vision and speaks to him saying in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. But Lord, I've heard of him. He's the guy who's coming here to arrest your people. And the Lord said to Ananias in verse 15, go, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias obeyed the Lord and he went to Saul. He called him brother. He watched the scales fall off of his eyes. He saw him filled with the Holy Spirit. And within a few days, he saw him proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I wonder if he said to the Lord, I'll never doubt you again. Our passage today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. And I want to highlight a certain phrase that he uses. He says, Christ took hold of me. Or in another translation, Christ has made me his own. As we saw last week in Caleb Smith's message, Paul has been making clear to the church 
at Philippi that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. And he is informing them that through knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, and this is in Philippians 3 verse 11, that he, Paul, has his heart set on attaining resurrection from the dead. Attaining resurrection from the dead. Hold on to that phrase. Now, this word for attaining in the Greek is katantao, and it has so much meaning packed in. It means arriving at your destination, but specifically from a voyage on the sea, and to finally come down and land on the coastline to step onto the shore. And there's also an element of this word of coming face to face. So Paul says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, and we'll read it together, not that I have already obtained this, right, the resurrection from the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now this word for attained is different. This word is thano, and it carries a sense of having already arrived at something beforehand. So there's something that Paul has already attained, and there is a promise of what he is running towards, of what he will attain. Well, Paul and the believers at Philippi have already attained salvation. They've already arrived. Jesus has taken hold of them. And the absolute truth of this precedes and anticipates and secures everything that follows. And it has set them on a course that culminates in what? Well, again, according to verse 11, it's the resurrection from the dead. An actual, literal resurrection in a new body, in a new dwelling, in eternal life with God. How do I know? Just jump with me to verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him, enables him to subject all things to himself, will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious one. So Paul anticipates with total confidence that one day he will be made perfect, which means complete and whole and not lacking anything. Remember, it already belongs to us in Christ, though we haven't experienced it yet. So perhaps it is similar to an inheritance that hasn't been released to us yet because it's not the appointed time. So we have this salvation behind us that is secure and unshakable, and we are confident about a secure and unshakable future. But what about the now? the now of the Christian life on earth between what we have attained, thano, and what we will attain, katantao. And Paul likens the now, this life in Christ on earth, to the running of a race. 
in his language here in verse 14, of pressing on toward the goal and obtaining the prize. And Paul uses this analogy time and time again over the years. So it's clearly a mess, uh, analogy that's very important to him, which works for me because I also am a runner in certain circumstances. Okay, I run when something's chasing me. Having said that, let's not have me expounding too much on the running analogy, but what does this analogy mean to Paul? What kind of a race is it? Nope, it's not a salvation earning race. Nice try. Nope, it's not a try really hard to be perfect and never make a mistake so I can impress God and look better than other people race. But that's a common mistake. I'll give you a hint. Think back to why Paul is in prison right now. Think back to what the Lord told Ananias. He said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. That word, my name, is anamitos in Greek, and it actually, it means of my name, the sake of my name, but it also means the sake of my reputation, the sake of my fame. It literally means to reveal or to make known someone's true character. Having said all that, I think it's safe to say that this is a gospel-testifying race. Let's look at the other places where Paul uses the running analogy. In Acts chapter 20, he says that he's been testifying to the gospel of repentance in public, from house to house, and now he says in verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course. Now quickly, this word course is dramas, and it literally means the race course for a foot race. So, if only I may finish my foot race, and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. The next passage I found where he uses a running analogy is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. And finally, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 8, Paul is nearing the end of his life, he's nearing the end of his ministry, and he is passing the baton to Timothy and telling him, do not be ashamed of the gospel, keep encouraging the church, keep doing the work of an evangelist. And in verse six he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, meaning from this point forward, there is a crown laid up for me, a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, based on all of these other instances where Paul uses the running analogy, I believe 
that we can understand that this is a gospel-testifying run. See, we are co-laborers with Christ, meaning we're in the family business now. He puts us in the room where everything happens and not as underlings either. Ephesians 2.6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We have access to all of his resources. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted it to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He has made us privy to inside information. John 15, 15, Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And then he says in Matthew 10, 17, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus is saying, I want you to be a lived expression of my life, a living testimony of the gospel. So it's God's purposes, it's his pleasure, it's his energy. Now run with it, right? So, okay, what is this gospel that Paul preached? And by the way, Paul didn't preach a, he didn't preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words, which is a very famous misquote by St. Francis of Assisi. That's actually not what he said. And a tiny bit of research shows that St. Francis used words when he preached the gospel. Oftentimes, climbing up on a straw bale if he was in the country, or a box or steps at a, in a public building if he was in the city, because he wanted his voice to carry. Okay, yes, I do believe that our lives and our love need to display the gospel. And Jesus tells us this in Matthew 5, 16. But I digress. The gospel Paul preaches, right? We're, we're running with his analogy, the running the race analogy. The gospel that Paul preaches using words is found in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appears to so many people. And then Paul says, he appeared to me too, by the way. I, I saw him, even though I was running a little bit late. I saw the Lord. And so he says, we preach with words, by the way. And so you believed. Well, now, open door, we believe. And so we preach. That is, we tell the message of his death for our sins, his burial and resurrection, not leaving anything out. And I know, I know it's, it's hard to share the gospel, so I am exhorting myself here. It's very difficult, and maybe that is because um, we do get the feeling that people have a hard time hearing the gospel. I, first of all, the gospel starts with a conviction of sin, which our human pride resists more than anything else. You have to think of Paul. He thought of himself as the most righteous person. He did not see that he was living his life in opposition to God. But then he met Jesus on the road. And his heart was humbled in the light 
of God's glory and grace, and he realized that he was the chief of sinners. So some people's hearts soften with the gospel, some people's hearts harden. We can expect that. Aside from just the topic of sin, we also know that the resurrection is a really hard concept for people to wrap their brain around. And I think we can be pretty understanding and gracious about that. Because, let's face it, dead people coming back to life again is not in our frame of reference. People are born and they die. People are born and they die. That's our frame of reference. And we have to remember that the disciples had a hard time with, with this too. They still didn't get it, even though they, Jesus had said, I am the resurrection and the life. They had seen him raise people from the dead. They had um, heard him talk about how he was going to die and be raised, and they were still completely befuddled with the empty tomb. And it wasn't until he appeared to them in his post-resurrection body, they ate with him. Thomas got to put his his hands in Jesus's wounds, and then they believed. And then they, the Holy Spirit came and they picked up their pens and they opened their mouths and they proclaimed, he is God, he is God. And they proclaimed his death and his burial and his resurrection, and we believed. Now that's our testimony. And we now are the ones who are running with this baton, delivering the good news as a matter of first importance. Well, what does the resurrection mean for us? It means that we who are in Christ don't have to be afraid of death. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who held the power of death, that is the devil, to free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Can you see today how the fear of death holds people in bondage? Jesus came to destroy that. Listen, I know that things are scary right now. We are concerned for our loved ones. We are concerned for ourselves. We want to be so wise because the danger is real. And so I hope if you know me at all that you know I am not just trying to gloss over things. Remember I said today my, my prayer is that you will be strengthened, that you will be encouraged, that you will be comforted by God's word. Well, God's word says that we who are in Christ, we do not need to fear death as those who have no hope. I want you to know that I have experienced loss. When my dad went to be with the Lord when I was 15, I, I don't have words for that kind of pain. The effects of that loss are still with me. But like 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, I do not grieve as one who has no hope. I grieve for myself, yes, but not as one who has no hope. This is a poster that hung in my parents' bedroom growing up. My dad was a runner, and he had cut out this little picture of himself running a marathon, and he had taped it onto this poster, and it was framed and hanging there all my growing up years. Why did he do that? I think it's because he saw his life on earth as a race to the ultimate finish line. See, he was taken hold of by Christ Jesus when he believed the gospel that was preached to him. 
and he knew he was headed for resurrection life. He wanted to be with the Lord. You say, what about people who aren't in Christ? Tell them. Tell them. They are afraid as ones who have no hope. They need to know the power and the comfort of the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors, okay? We have authority in Jesus' name to offer people freedom from their fear of death by giving them the gospel that we received. If you love someone, tell them about the resurrection. My goodness, if it's your enemy, tell them about the resurrection. Yes, it's awkward. But our urgency to see people freed from their fear of death needs to take precedence over our fear of social awkwardness. In the last 10 years or so, a video has been circulating through the church on YouTube. You may have seen it. It's of a man named Penn Gillet. He's a world-famous magician of Penn and Teller. Um, he's an atheist, does not believe in God, does not approve of Christianity, but at one point, he received a Bible from someone at one of his shows, and he posted on YouTube a video about it. So I'm going to quote that. He said, This man was polite, honest, and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize, or to share his faith. And he gave me a Bible. He goes on, And I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think, well, it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, well, how much do you have to hate? This is what he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? He says, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that that truck was bearing down on you, he says, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Wow, that's really compelling. This is more important. Now, when we share the gospel, some people will believe. Many will not. That is the pattern that we see in scripture. But then again, you never know. You plant a seed. You don't see it growing, yet do we always perceive growth? We don't know how God is working. Oftentimes it's imperceptible to us. You know Sue Sawyer. She told me that at least 10 different people told her about the gospel before she finally put her faith in Christ, and she said she fought it hard. Now isn't she radiant among us in Christ's beauty and love? I once shared Christ with a friend in high school, and it never seemed to take. Well, she emailed me just a few years ago to tell me she had come to faith in Christ, and she thanked me for sharing with her all those years ago. Wow, Lord. So the results aren't up to us? No, we are just the proclaimers running a gospel-testifying race, and like runners, we push past the discomfort. Once you have shared and you don't know if they'll ever receive the Lord, here comes the hardest part, in my opinion. You have to trust God. You have to trust God. 
I think there's a, a big element of suffering in both the testifying to the gospel and then the releasing of it to let God do his work. It is true that Paul suffers, but he thinks as of suffering as fellowship with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 6, he mentions afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He says, we have nothing. And yet, at the same time, we possess everything. Our friends who live in service of the gospel in China recently told us that the state-approved churches in China do not allow them to preach on creation, the resurrection, or end times. So most of the believers that they know, they meet in the underground church. One family that they know, the husband goes to one home church, the wife goes to another home church, because if they get raided, they want to make sure that one parent comes home to their children. But what they won't do is give up the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because they know it is the power of the gospel. They are running a gospel testifying race. If I may, I would just like to speak to our young people for a minute. Listen, the world wants you to think that if it isn't enticing and entertaining and exciting and, and if it doesn't taste like a, like a sonic slush with nerds in it, every minute of the day that you should drop it and find the next thing and find the next thing don't buy it well it's okay to buy a sonic slush with nerds in it they're pretty awesome but what i'm saying is don't buy the lie you are a disciple of the lord jesus christ and you need to remember what he said that in the world you will have trouble but i leave you my peace you will have the trials that are common to all of humanity, like coming home from high school camp and finding out that the, shape, the, the, the state is shutting down again due to coronavirus. And oh, by the way, the freeway is on fire and you're gonna have to take a four hour detour just to get home. And I wondered if there was a moment where you thought, was that real in the mountains when I met with God? Cause this is starting to feel less exciting, like I'm not feeling his presence. I want you to know that you're in really good company. This, this is normal that, that we have as believers, the trials that are common to all of humanity. And on top of that, you now are a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ in a world that hates him. And you are going to be running a race, a gospel testifying race, holding out the word of truth graciously and boldly in a world that wants nothing to do with it. And you are going to feel alone. But Jesus said that he would be with you always, even until the end of the age. You are in the very best company alongside Paul and a whole list of flawed and messed up people just like us in Hebrews chapter 11. And the only thing to their credit is that they put their faith in God and persevered in his faithfulness. Hebrews 11, verse 13, it says that these men and women we've been talking about, they died in faith, not having yet received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
verse 16, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 32, I'm, I'm going to read a long passage, so attend with me. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Verse 39, these were all commended for their faith. Yet, none of them received yet what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. When will we all be made perfect? I mean, in the ultimate sense of finishing this journey on the high seas and disembarking from the ship and coming down finally on the shoreline and seeing Jesus face to face, not dimly through a glass, but face to face. When, when, scripture says, when we're together. When we're together, when we're together with the Lord. Even Paul, in our passage in Philippians, said he had not attained it yet. But like these men and women who put their faith in God, and like Paul who testified, so that we might know Christ and the power of his resurrection, we now see our destination and we greet it from afar knowing through faith that it is ours. And we press on in a gospel-testifying race. And as we are crossing the finish line, we will be able to say, like Paul, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we press on. Lord, we thank you that you died to give us freedom from fear. We thank you for the resurrection and how you already took hold of us and that you have given us a promise of completion. Help us to be gracious and bold proclaimers of the gospel, fixing our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and above all else, be glorified, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.